The scripture reading this morning will be from the book of Luke, chapter 12, verses 35 through 38, and 47 through 48. Again, that's Luke, chapter 12, verses 35 through 38, and 47 through 48. It's page 921 and 922 in your few Bibles. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching assuredly. I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. I don't know what you liked to do growing up, but when I was growing up, one of my absolute favorite things to do in the world was to read comic books. I loved comic books. I loved the idea of someone who had powers that were beyond those of the average human being that was wanting to do good. And so one of those comic books I read often was Spider-Man. Now, if you've read the Spider-Man comic book, you're probably very familiar with this phrase that I'm about to quote. You find it on the first page of just about every one of the comic books. In fact, it even made it into the recent Spider-Man movies. And that is the phrase... With great power comes great responsibility. That's something you'd see all throughout the comic series. And you know, when I was a child, I thought, well, Spider-Man must be very smart. I mean, this is a pretty good statement. And so I started thinking about that, and it wasn't until years later I realized that, as is the case with most quotes we consider very wise or exceptional, God said it first. In fact, it's tucked away here in the end of this parable that Jesus is telling about preparedness. And we see it in that final verse that Clay read for us so well. To whom much is given, much will be required. And what I'd like for us to do this morning is begin here in this parable and use this as a launching pad uh, to see how this principle is reflected throughout the entire Bible. And so I'd invite you to grab your Bibles. We'll be looking in both the Old and the New Testament. And if you haven't already, please turn with me to Luke chapter 12. While you're turning there, we want to let you know that we're excited everyone is here. If you're visiting with us, uh, we want to do everything we can to encourage you. Please stick around, get to know us, and let us know ways we can minister to you and ways that we can help you. As we think about Luke chapter 12, we pick up in the middle of a discussion Jesus is having, and in the portion we just heard read, he's talking specifically about being prepared. And so he gives them a situation He compares them to servants who are waiting for a master to come home from the wedding feast. And so they have to have their clothes ready. They have to be ready to go, and they have to be waiting because they have no idea when their master is going to return. 
And so he uses that image as a way to remind us we have to be waiting, we have to be expectant. But what I'd like for us to focus at is what happens in the last couple of verses in this specific parable. We see two servants described in verses 47 and 48 of Luke chapter 12. First of all, we see a servant who knew his master's will. In other words, he knew what he was supposed to do, but he said, well, I don't think my master's going to be back for a while. And Jesus talks about that servant doing things he should getting drunk, acting in ways that he shouldn't act. And so then we see in verse 47 that the servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do anything shall be beaten with many stripes. In other words, that servant in their day would experience severe punishment. It wouldn't be taken lightly that he wasn't ready for his master when he returned. But look at verse 48. Jesus says, But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few For everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. So Jesus here compares servants. One servant who knew his master's will decided not to do it, he'll be punished severely. But a servant who didn't know his master's will wouldn't receive that same type of severe punishment. Now here Jesus is not promoting ignorance of what God wants, ignorance of the master's will. His entire ministry and the ministry of His apostles was one of spreading God's Word. They wanted God's message to be spread. What Jesus is saying here is there is a direct relationship between what we've been given and what is required of us. There's a direct relationship between our knowledge and what we should do with that knowledge. He is saying the reason that servant should be punished was not just because he did things that were wrong, but he did them knowing the Master's will. And so here he gives us that principle. To whom much has been given, much is required. And I'd like for us to think about that principle as it stretches through the entire Bible. Old Testament and New Testament. All the way from God calling Abraham to leave his home and to follow God to a place God would show him. To Jesus telling his followers to take up their cross and to follow him. God has always demanded everything we could give. He's always asked for our best. He's always asked for the most we could offer. And to those whom much is given, much is required. And so I'd like for us to think about that as it's reflected in three specific individuals in the Old Testament. We're going to visit three different throne rooms this morning. And we're going to see what we can learn in the throne room of those people who have wealth and power to see what's expected of them and to see how they delivered on those expectations. Have you ever been inside a throne room before? Uh, The throne room pictured above is the one in the Warsaw Palace. And I like the picture because it shows the royal nature of a throne room. How important that area is. You've probably read stories of kings that deliberated over important decisions in the throne room. We've watched movies where those who were captured were brought before the king in the throne room. The throne room is a place of power. It's a symbol of prestige. It's a place where things happen. That's where the action is. Decisions are made, important decisions, are made in the throne room. So I'd like for us to look at three separate throne rooms this morning and see where we can find God using people who had been given much and see how much was required of them. Over the past few weeks, we've been focusing on stewardship. We've been focusing on giving. And I hope that it's been some benefit to you in your Bible classes and in your worship and in the material that's been sent to your house. I know it has been for me. And as we think about stewardship and giving, we also need to remember the fact that this congregation has proven that it has a desire to give. 
individuals here have responded to the call that God has, has given us to give freely, to give cheerfully, we can see that not just in a one-time special contribution recently, but even in our weekly times where we're getting together, contributing to God's work, this congregation is full of people with giving hearts. And that's something to be excited about. And it's not just monetary giving. We all know stewardship involves more than that, whether it's a teddy bear workshop or taking food to those who have either recently experienced a loss or maybe recently experienced an addition in the form of a new birth, chaperoning people on a youth trip, helping take our young people to a Bible bowl. This congregation has a giving heart, and that's exciting. I'd like for us to, to build on that, to capitalize on that, and to focus on all the ways that God can use us. You know, we've been given a lot here at the Mount Juliet Church of Christ. Even the building we have around us, the resources we have, and the people sitting in the pews next to you, we've been given a great deal. Let's reflect on that as we go through. The first passage I'd like for you to turn to is in Genesis chapter 41. Genesis chapter 41. That's page 40 in our pew Bibles. And I want you to imagine a scene in a throne room with me. A throne room in Egypt as Pharaoh is sitting on his throne and he has a young man about 30 years old brought before him. And as we look at this young man named Joseph, we see that even though he's put on the robes of an Egyptian and even though he's been shaven as was their custom and he's been cleaned up and he's presentable, when you look in his eyes, I think we can see the evidence of the years of suffering he had endured. We remember Joseph as he was persecuted by his brothers, made fun of, hated by them, thrown into a pit by them, even sold into slavery by his brothers. And then as he tried to work within the confines of being a slave, he was framed, thrown into prison. And those years of struggle are there in the face of a man standing before Pharaoh. But the reason Joseph is standing there is because he's done something that none of Pharaoh's other servants or his wise men could do. Pharaoh had some troubling dreams, and Joseph, through the power of God, interpreted those dreams for Pharaoh. In fact, Joseph said, Pharaoh, these dreams are direct message from God. He's warning you that there will be seven years where there's plenty to eat and then seven years of famine. What you need to do is store up food during the first seven years so you can be protected during the second seven years. And I want you to imagine being here in this throne room, seeing all of the servants of Pharaoh who know full well that Joseph had just been in prison. This is a prisoner that had just been brought up. He lived a life as a slave. He's now standing before the Pharaoh. I want you to think about how they would respond as we begin reading in verse 37 of Genesis 41. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. Joseph, someone who has been a slave, he's been a prisoner, is now second in command to Pharaoh. At the age of 30 years old, with everything he's endured, he's now receiving more wealth and power than he probably ever expected in his entire life. You see, wealth and power is something we have to handle with care. It's something that's very sensitive. A man named J. Oswald Sanders once said, the most exacting test 
that any human being can ever survive is the test of prosperity. How do we act when we feel like we have it all? How do we act when we're blessed? And what does that tell us about our heart? How does our actions, how do our actions when we have blessings reflect who we really are? We're about to see that in Joseph. Joseph is facing the prosperity test. He's going from nothing to just about everything. The Pharaoh gave him his signet ring. And signet really means just to sink. And the reason this ring had that kind of imagery with it is because it wasn't just a piece of jewelry. This ring was something, if a king wanted to officially seal a document or to seal that a decree was from him, he would take the ring and he would sink it down into soft clay until it left that impression. And once you saw that impression, you'd know this is from the Pharaoh. Serious business. This decree is meant to last. And Pharaoh is giving that ring to Joseph. Even though Joseph is technically the second in command, he's been given the power of Pharaoh to sign documents, to make decrees in the name of Pharaoh. People are going to begin to bow down to Joseph. But in all this time, to whom is Joseph bowing? People are bowing down to him. People are giving Joseph reverence. Who is he giving reverence? Well, I think we see that in the next few verses. Skip down with me to verse 51 and 52 as we see the name of Joseph's sons. Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. In the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. The names of Joseph's sons reflected where the power and wealth Joseph had been given came from. They came from God. Stop and think for just a second about the models we have of power and wealth today in America. Think about one in particular who has his own television show that is constantly uh, number one in the ratings. A man named Donald Trump has really swept America's attention. We see interviews and specials all over the place, and it's interesting, if you've seen any kind of interview in his life, one of his philosophies is that he likes to put his name on everything. Whether it's real estate or bottled water, he wants to plaster his name over it because it's his, and he wants to claim it. He wants people to know that it's his. Do you know when we have the prosperity test that Joseph faced, I think it would have been tempting for Joseph to want to put his name over this wealth, to put his name over this power. Oh, that's right. That's right. I grew up and I was sold into slavery and I tried to work to become a slave. I was framed and put into prison and now it's time for me to claim what's rightfully mine. Now it's time for me to put my name on this success. The name of Joseph. That's who people are bowing down to. They're bowing down to Joseph. And it would have been so tempting for his human nature to plaster his name over that success. But we see, literally, he gives the glory to God. Every time he speaks to one of his children, Manasseh or Ephraim, he will either be reminded of the fact that God has made him forget all the troubles he went through or that God has made him fruitful. Every time he says their name, that's what their names mean. He's reminding them of the fact that his wealth and power come from God. And we see that's the, that's the first step that all three individuals will reflect. But he knew his power came from God and Joseph used his wealth and power with compassion. If we want to know how to use our wealth and power here as Americans, as citizens of Mount Juliet, as Christians, we have to use our wealth and power with compassion. Look at what Joseph does. As he's identified this problem through the guidance of God, and he has been the one appointed by Pharaoh to stockpile the food. Look at verse 57. 
So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because famine was severe in all the lands. This wasn't just an Egyptian phenomenon. There was famine all over the place. Now, it would have been easy for Joseph to say, well, let's stockpile some food, and then those seven years of famine will be the ones in control. We can hoard and stockpile the food all for ourselves, and then we'll have all kinds of power over other nations. Think of the dominance. If you were the only nation that had food, think of what you could do. But Joseph allows people from all lands to come and to buy the grain. He was compassionate on other countries. He also showed mercy and compassion to his own family. Let's read through as we enter into the next chapter and see that Joseph's brothers come into Egypt to buy grain. Verse 5, The sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Verse 6, Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Now, if you remember the dreams Joseph had growing up, this makes a lot of sense. When Joseph had dreams about the sun and the moon and the stars or the sheaves of grain bowing down to him, this begins to make a lot of sense. And in verse 8, Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. It's kind of a play on words here. Joseph recognized them, but he made himself unrecognizable. After all, he changed a lot since the last time they saw him. And so he begins to talk with them and wants to find out more about their situation. Look at verse 13. His own brothers looked to him and they say this, Your servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. In fact, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. One is no more. That one they're talking about is Joseph, the very one they're face to face with. He's hearing his own brothers say, well, one of our brothers is no more. How would you feel to have one of your family members say, well, we've given up on him. He's no more. He doesn't exist to us anymore. We've written him off. We've closed the book on him. That's it. Joseph is hearing his own brother say that. Wouldn't it have been convenient? Wouldn't it have been tempting for him to use his newfound power, his newfound wealth, to lord it over his brothers, to punish them, to keep them from getting any kind of food to support their family? But we see later on, as events continue to play out, Joseph forgives his brothers. He shows them mercy. And as we continue reading in chapter 45, and then even after the death of his father Jacob, he shows his brothers a kind of compassion that I think is important for us to show. What are ways that we, as members of Mount Juliet, can use our wealth and the power God has given us to show compassion? What are ways we can minister to the people that are outside these walls in the community surrounding us, a community that's growing every day? More people are coming into every day. How can we show compassion? To whom much is given, much is required. We've been given a lot. Compassion is one of the elements required as we live. As we think about Joseph, let's move on to another throne room. This throne room is not in Egypt, but it's in Persia. And it takes place in the life of a woman named Esther. And so if you would, turn to the book of Esther. The book of Esther, chapter 4. Esther, chapter 4, we see that a woman who was once the lowly, simple cousin of a man named Mordecai has now been placed in the position of queen. In fact, at this point in her life, Esther has been queen for five years. And if you've read the book, you know about the servant Haman. And Haman had an evil plot. He was trying to convince the king to get rid of the entire Jewish nation that lived in that area. Now Esther was, of course, a Jew, as was her cousin Mordecai. 
She'd been made queen. And so now she's in a position to stand in the way of this evil plot. And so imagine the scene in the throne room as Esther would be standing, getting ready to go in before the king. The king is in his throne room, and you might not think it's very significant for a queen to walk in to discuss matters with her king. But in this time, even the queen didn't come into the throne room unless the king called for her. Unless Esther was summoned, she couldn't walk in. In fact, if she walked in and the king didn't recognize her, if he didn't raise his scepter and recognize that it was okay if she walked in, she could be put to death. And so you can imagine the nervousness, the anticipation, as she would be heading in to that throne room. Imagine what that scene must have been like. And think about what it was that motivated Esther to do that. As we're looking in Esther chapter 4, let's look at this message from Mordecai that is one of the most memorable passages in the entire Bible. In verse 13, Mordecai is corresponding with Esther, Esther 4 and 13, and Mordecai told them to answer Esther. He sent a messenger to her saying, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Do you know that the name of God is not mentioned anywhere in the book of Esther? And even though the name of God is not specifically mentioned, this passage shows us that Mordecai is thinking about God and Esther is thinking about God, who knows that you were not put in a position for such a time as this? Mordecai gives Esther an important message. He says, number one, that God's plan is bigger than you or me. In other words, if you decide not to step in, God will accomplish His will. I don't know how He'll do it, but He'll accomplish His will. But who knows whether you're not in this position for such a time as this. You see, Esther understood that even though she was beautiful and even though she'd won a beauty contest with several other women, she knew that it was God that had placed her as the queen of Persia. And so Esther regarded her wealth and power as directly from God. Because of that, she showed courage. Joseph showed compassion. Esther shows courage as she prepares herself to walk in before the king to use the wealth and power that God had given her to try to save God's people. Who knows that you were not put in the kingdom for such a time as this? You know, I think we can ask ourselves that same question today. That who knows question. We're sitting here in one of the fastest growing communities in Tennessee and I'm sure in the South. There are people moving in here, thousands of people, every year. Who knows that we weren't placed in this position where we are right now for such a time as this? Who knows that you weren't given the specific talents and abilities you have to serve this community in such a time as this? Who knows that there aren't people moving in here even as we speak, that God wants to use us to reach out and, and to, to show them His love, to show them His message? Who knows that we're not here for such a time as this, to reach out to all the people who are moving in, to show compassion to those that are around us? Who knows? You know, we can remember the words of Mordecai and understand that God's plan is much bigger than us. In other words, God will accomplish His plan. Even if I decide not to be a part of it, there will be other instruments that God will use to accomplish His will. But who knows that it couldn't be me? What if it's me? What if I'm the way that God wants to accomplish His will? What if we're the way God wants to do incredible things in Mount Juliet? What if? 
who knows that we're not here for that very purpose? And so as we think about giving, as we think about stewardship, who knows that we haven't been blessed with what we have because God wants to do some amazing things and wants some amazing change to happen in people's lives right here in Mount Julie. As we think about Esther, we know that she did walk into that throne room. In fact, Esther chapter 5 talks about it. In verse 1, it says, Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, across from the king's house, while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house, facing the entrance of the house. So Esther walks in. This is the moment of truth. If the king doesn't raise his scepter, then Esther could be put to death. So look at verse 2. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight. The king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. And from this point on, God uses Esther to give the Jews a chance to fight back persecution and ultimately to give the Jewish nation a chance to survive. Esther used her wealth and power with courage. Let's look at one more in the Old Testament before we leave here this morning. One more individual uh, that was able to use God blessed him with to further God's kingdom. As we look in the book of 2 Chronicles, we read about several different kings. But one king that stands out among all the others is named Josiah. And on pages 414 and 415 in your pew Bible, we read about Josiah in 2 Chronicles chapter 34. 2 Chronicles chapter 34, we begin with an introduction to Josiah that he was eight years old when he became king. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Look at verse 2. In 2 Chronicles chapter 34, he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You see, when we see Joseph's life, he used God's wealth with compassion. Esther used it with courage. But Josiah used it with conviction. Even as a ruling as a king from the time he was eight years old, he didn't walk to the right or to the left. In fact, eight years later, we read in verses 3 uh, through 5 that he goes through and he takes out all these graven images and all these idols, these places to worship Baal. This was eight years into his reign. He would have been about 16 or 17 years old. And he's making all of these changes because he's a man of conviction. Do you know there were kings that came before Josiah that were good men. And they had taken away some of the altars to Baal. They had taken away some of the false gods and the graven images. But they hadn't taken away all of them. Josiah took away them all. He didn't leave a single one standing. And what's even more interesting is when the book of the law is discovered by Hilkiah as they're cleaning out the temple. Listen to what Hilkiah says when he, he finds the book of the law and then he sends a message to Josiah. In 2 Chronicles chapter 34, in verse 18, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Imagine the scene as Josiah is here listening to the words of the law read. It's been lost for so long. He's listening to the words of the law. And look what happened in verse 19. It happened when the king heard the words of the law that he tore his clothes. This was a common practice to show grief. The outer garment would have been torn. And if you were the king, chances are your outer garment was pretty expensive. Clothing was very expensive in those days. In fact, it was seen as a way of investing. Josiah took it off and tore it because he was upset with what had happened. Josiah knew his wealth and his power came from God. And he was going to act out of conviction. Not only had he totally cleansed Judah of all of the idols and all of the altars of Baal, he goes through even after reading this, and later on in this chapter, he will read it before the entire nation. Flip with me real quickly to 2 Chronicles 34, beginning in, as we see Josiah 
uh, in verse 28. Beginning in verse 28. Here's a message, the end of the message that God has for Josiah. God says, Surely I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see the calamity which I will bring in this place and its inhabitants. So they brought back word to the king, and then in verse 29, the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites, and all the people, great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the house of the Lord. He read the law for the people. It had been lost for so long. But Josiah was a man of conviction. He used the wealth and the power he had to give God's law to everyone, great and small. It wasn't just a certain person that was able to receive that law. He didn't keep it to himself. He gave it to everyone. He handled wealth and power with care, and he handled it with conviction. So as we think of Joseph's Joseph's compassion, Esther's courage, Josiah's conviction, we realize that here, in our context where we are, we have those same challenges. To use the wealth and the power God has given us in a way that glorifies Him. To whom much is given, much is required. Every one of us in here has been given a great deal. By any survey of nations all around us, we in America occupy the top rung of the ladder of riches, the ladder of wealth. What are we going to do with what we've been given? We've been given a lot. We've been given great power. How are we going to show our responsibility? Are you ready to walk into an entirely different throne room than one we've talked about this morning? Are you ready to walk into a throne room that isn't located in Judah or that isn't located in Persia or Egypt, a heavenly throne room? Are you ready to come before the throne of the Lord? You see, one of the greatest things that we can ever share with our fellow human beings is that God has given us a way to come before that throne boldly. Not because of anything we've done, but because of the grace of Jesus. Evident through His blood on the cross, we can be washed in that blood in baptism, rise up and walk a new life where we can walk into the throne room of God. And we won't have to fear because we're covered in the blood of Jesus. We've been given a great deal. And it may be that you're here this morning and you're kind of like Josiah. Maybe this is the first time the words of the law have been spoken to you. Maybe this is the first time you've heard God's message. Wouldn't it be great to respond the same way Josiah did? To respond with conviction? To take a stand? To eradicate sin totally out of our lives? Every place that is set up to worship another God, if we could just remove that, focus on the Lord. Wouldn't it be great to respond in that way? Wouldn't it be great to respond in the the way of Joseph? to have compassion on those around us. And as we see people with needs this morning, to show that compassion and mercy to them, to help them. Wouldn't it be great to have the attitude of Esther, courage to tackle anything in life because we've made our lives right with the Lord? If you need to take any of those steps to make your life right with God, to be able to walk into that throne room boldly, this may not be the last time you have the opportunity, but what would be a better time than right now as we stand and sing together?